Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. 
We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of October, St. Evans is supporting Feed the Streets LA, a community-based mutual aid organization that collects donated food, hygiene products, clothing, and educational items for face-to-face distribution. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evans. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand dyed yarns and thoughtfully made notions. 
slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is literally recording this, this moment that I'm speaking in a hotel room in Austin, Texas. Right now I'm here for work. Dustin is with me since it's our anniversary, and that's really convenient because he can mix this episode when I'm done. I just really wanted to get this out to you. This is, this is a good one. I mean, they all are, right? But you know what I mean. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 102. Have you ever played that dinner party game, you know, where you list the famous people living or dead that you'd like to have at your dream dinner party? This is a hard one for me because, well, currently, most of all, I would just like to have all my friends and family in one place together. And maybe they're cats, too, because I haven't seen them in a long time. But as some of us have learned the very hard way, cats aren't super stoked on meeting new cats which is perhaps the biggest drawback to cats if you're a more extroverted person. I'm secretly an introvert, so I'm relieved that I'll never have to take Brenda to a park to meet other cats, where I'd be forced to meet other cat people and possibly feel really awkward around them. (laughs) It's hard to say exactly who I would invite to my famous person dinner party. Why all these famous people are converging on my home in burden hand is beyond me, but let's just say they were. Who would it be? Would it be Paul Shear, Camilla Parker Bowles? Or how about Cori Bush or AOC or the rest of the squad or Roxanne Gay or I mean I mean, there are a lot of people that I want to invite to this dinner party. The New York Times economics reporter Ben Castleman or well while we're talking about economics, how about Robert Reich. I would love to have the hosts of your wrong about come. In fact, all of my favorite podcasting people and really like a lot of you there too. So suddenly this isn't a dinner party. It's really a dinner gala and it doesn't sound very fun. Truthfully, the worst thing about a dinner party is that you don't get to talk to everyone. And if you're hosting it, you spend more time fretting about dirty dishes and keeping the bathroom clean and glasses full and all of that stuff than actually enjoying your guests company. So I guess I'm canceling my famous person dinner party uh, before it even was on the books. (laughs) 
Today's guest is someone who I'd rather, rather than having them to my dinner party, I would like to have them over for an early afternoon coffee or tea. Then we end up talking for hours. We see it's starting to get dark. We realize that it's really happy hour now. So we have a few drinks. Then I throw together some snacks. Before you know it, it's 10 p.m. or so. And we realize we spent the whole day together having a blast without going anywhere and just talking and laughing and sharing our stories. And that's how I felt when I sat down to record this conversation with the one and only Aja Barber. There's no way you're unfamiliar with Aja, especially if you listen to Close Horse regularly. There's a lot of intersection there. Uh, Definitely infinitely more people know Aja Barber than they know Close Horse. Uh, But if for some reason you are unfamiliar with Aja, She describes herself as a writer, stylist, and consultant whose work deals with the intersections of sustainability and the fashion landscape. She's been sharing all kinds of amazing ideas and thoughts on social media for years now. I'm sure she's inspired you to think about your consumption, to think about the stuff we buy, to think about the impact of these industries on the world. I know I know she has for me in so many, so many different times and ways. She recently wrote what is, in my opinion, one of the most eagerly awaited books of 2021. It's called Consumed, The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change, and Consumerism. And I cannot recommend it enough. If you're listening to the show, you already like this kind of subject matter. Even if you feel like you're an expert in consumerism and fast fashion and how they're impacting the planet and its people, Consumed will help you articulate these ideas as you try to educate others around you, because that's kind of the hardest part of it all. It's one thing for you to absorb the information and think about it and make changes, but to articulate that to others, to be able to explain clearly, concisely, and impactfully to others is is difficult. It's something I've been working on since I started making Clothes Horse, and I'm constantly reevaluating my approaches there. Asha breaks it down in clear unjargony, just visceral terms. You cannot read this book and not find yourself recommitted, more committed, or newly committed to changing the world around you. And like I said, it gives you those speaking points for talking to others. Today's conversation with Aja is part one of two. We ended up talking for hours because we had such a great time. I'm seriously, I was having just one of those days when I felt really tired, really uncertain, just not like myself. And that time with Aja renewed my commitment and excitement about the work we're all doing. It was pretty magical, and I'm really grateful for Aja's time. I know I normally give you a whole rundown of facts and figures and ideas and quotes and everything else before I jump into the main event, but honestly, This conversation is powerful without hearing anything else from me beforehand. So let's jump right in. Well, Aja, listen, everyone knows who you are, but maybe they don't. So do you want to introduce yourself? (laughs) You are so kind. There are probably a lot of people who are like, who? Um, (laughs) My name is Aja Barber. I have an Instagram account. And I'm a writer. I just wrote a book called Consumed. And my book talks about 
the systems that all of our fashion industry runs on and the ones that are exploitative and why we should know about these systems and try and do our best to pull away from these systems if we're in a position where we can. And it looks different for every person because we're not all operating at the same place, but I want people to understand that this is a bad system. It's uh, bad for marginalized people and that's who bears the brunt of it. And I feel like people don't really fully understand that. So the goal for me is to get people to a place where they're really starting to understand what this system is and who it hurts and also talk about it in a way where people who aren't necessarily within the fashion industry can understand as well. Because one of the things the fashion industry does magnificently well is build a very high barrier for entry for conversations, but then go, everyone should just join this conversation as if it's possible with the barriers. And so I try and talk about the fashion industry in real layman's terms because everyone should care and everyone deserves to know the conditions in which their clothing is made. And everyone deserves to know, you know, what's going into the stuff that you put on your body. Your skin is an organism. And I don't really want to have only polyester to pick from when it comes to what I'm putting on my body. Oh, agreed. Agreed. I mean, I saw that that shift into polyester happen during my career. And yeah. now it's like if you go to any store, a vast majority of the clothing is polyester, even though it may not seem like it, like it might have a different texture. Yeah. It might seem cozy. It might seem lightweight. It, you know, people think polyester is like the 70s fabric that's like really stiff and like very obvious, but it's like kind of everything now. It's it's in a whole bunch of stuff. And yeah, the thing with polyester that people really still don't really understand is that it's plastic. There are so many Mm -hmm. people that don't, and I get why people don't know. Nobody's ever, the fossil fuel industry has been really great about like not really sharing information that polyester clothing is plastic. I feel like for (laughs) a lot of people that's still like, what? And so my goal is to talk about these conversations in a way that draws other people in so that we can start making some real credible change within the industry. I mean, I love that. One of the things that struck me most about Consumed is that it spoke in a very plain way, a very straightforward way about the industry, the system of oppression attached to it, the exploitation, the waste, all these things that I do feel like, you know, when you – other publications out there, blogs, whatever, about sustainability really speak about it in a more like – I don't know. Scientific or academic. Yeah. And it doesn't, and I think for a lot of people, it's like, well, that is not a comfortable way for me to communicate or receive information, or it just sounds boring. So I'm closing my ears and moving on. And so it doesn't, it doesn't reach as many people as it should. And I mean, I think not that I think the sustainability world is doing that on purpose, but I do think that fast fashion is relieved that the barrier for entry is so high into right. the conversation. Exactly. They're like, thank goodness. Yeah. You know, like most people are going to think this is boring. You know, they're going to be like, see something about it on like, I don't know, PBS and just skip through. Cause they're like, ah, I really wanted to watch 90 day fiance. Yeah. And so they won't hear the message. And I am all for like, how can we get more and more people? Like I want everyone I've ever met to hear this message and understand this because as long as people don't know, they're still shopping. 
Yeah. And also, you know, I, I think another thing that people do is when they do talk about it, it's like scary facts, scary facts. Here's some more Mm -hmm. scary facts. And you know what, when you hit people with all the scary facts all at once, you know what they do? They curl up in a blanket and hide under their sofa. (laughs) And so I I did, I did a panel once with somebody who was basically like, climate change is coming and here's what's going to happen. I could just, see people like recoiling and I was thinking great they're going to retain nothing from this conversation (laughs) I know I uh during the pandemic started to get really into reddit and if you ever want to just like really lose your mind with despair lose all hope for the future of the world Mm -hmm. get on reddit and find a post about climate change yeah totally or robots taking over the world or pick pick your issue that you know really devastates you Mm -hmm. get on there and read everybody's speculation about what will happen and how we're all doomed and then you'll feel like why bother i'm gonna go buy a keurig machine right now exactly just live it up and we do have that like that whole like I guess YOLO attitude because there is this this thing like we're already doomed so YOLO and the truth of the matter is in the words of my good friend Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson you know the the difference between one degree and two degree is actually worlds apart and it can happen quickly but if we stop at one degrees we can still have a future that will be different but one that isn't hellfire brimstone, everyone starving, basically. And so the future that we currently want is still up for grabs. We have to grab it, though. Right, right. I mean, I love that. One of the things I was going to ask you, because this is something I see constantly on social media, I'm sure people come at you with this same response. I, I get it on Instagram. I see I see it on other posts. It's like, well, the thing is, like Amazon or Shell or Zara, they're having a way bigger impact on the planet than I can ever have. So I can't do anything and I'm just going to keep on living this way. Like the problem is too big. What do you say to those people? I say to that, well... You can take that approach, but if someone was just like, you can fight something or you can just lay down and die, are you going to just be like, I'm just going (laughs) to lay down? Like, And the the truth of the matter is the reason why these companies are powerful is because too many of us are taking that approach, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, Aja Barber being like, I'm not going to buy fast fashion anymore. Screw these guys. That doesn't change anything, but Aja Barber's 254,000 Instagram readers starting to wake up and stopping that whole weekly splurge when they're after work and they're feeling bad because now they know it's bad, that changes something. Now, there is going to be no like altruistic incentive for any of these companies to change their way. Let's all just (laughs) get that out of our heads. Yeah. But the minute you start taking your money and putting it somewhere else, that company that used to get all your money, they want to know where it's going and they want to know why you're putting it there. And if it means that you're forcing them to be better by just taking your money away, that is still an impact and people need to recognize that. And when it's a lot of us that say, you know what? not going to do it anymore, H&M. Suddenly they're going, oh no, oh no, we've got to change our ways. And it's sad that companies can't do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do. But if we just all go, oh, well, I guess I'll just keep buying everything from Amazon, blah, blah, blah. We're not going to change anything. So like that defeatist attitude, it keeps us in this buying loop. And 
my goal is to wake people up and be like, look, we have options, you know? And the truth of the matter is I will never sit from a perch of superiority of going, oh, I'm so much better because I don't buy fast food <laughs> anymore. I will never do that. One, everyone hates that person. And two, Seriously. it's actually not helpful. Um, I'm coming from a place where I'm like, look, I was just like you. I used to be the person that bought 68 items of clothing a year while pretending like I wasn't doing that. I was definitely doing that. And I want to tell you, there's a better way to do it. And it actually feels better too. And so my goal is to share my experiences with people and let them know, like, it's okay to not have known these things, but Mm -hmm. now we actually know. So what do we do now? Yeah. I love that. I love that. And you're so right. Like, I another thing that I get a lot of pushback on is like, well, us not shopping from fast fashion doesn't change anything. And I'm like, ah, uh-uh, no. Let me tell you, as a person who has worked in that industry for a really long time, that there are only two things that will ever make any of those retailers change their ways. One is the law, right? Mm-hmm. The other is fear or actual loss of sales. Like, trust yeah. me, we there are people in those companies reading sales reports non-stop. And whether it's like they're saying, okay, it looks like we're not selling enough green clothes, go buy more green clothes, or, oh my God, like no one's buying anything from us. We're seeing this major loss. What's going on out there? They're going to go out and do the research or pay someone to do the research. And they're going to try and go after that business. They're going to be like, oh crap, now we're competing with this little indie band over brand over here that everybody's like liking. How do we compete with them? How do we look more like them? And it's like, surprise, you have to do the right thing. Ah, crap. You know, so (laughs) totally, totally. I mean, even like, uh, you know, recently I was telling you before we started recording how a certain fast fashion company is starting a secondhand platform, like trying to compete with Poshmark. And that's quite a few are actually, it wasn't just that one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're, they're all getting into it because they're like, oh, wait, people are buying all these secondhand clothes. How do we get a piece of that pie? We can pop it twice? Oh my goodness. Yeah, the same garbage? This is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, so they they want that piece of pie. They're seeing that out there. They're watching places like Poshmark or ThreadUp or whatever, and they want a piece of it. But this one brand has been reaching out to a lot of small makers and vintage sellers in the community to kind of get them to sign on and help them feel more authentic. Mm-hmm. And that wouldn't be happening if they weren't already trying to figure out where where their customers were going and finding these brands who were doing exactly. things Exactly. And yeah. can I also say, like, shout out to the one brand I know who definitely turned down one of these companies because that is – there are so many brands that want to say that like, oh, we're sustainable, this and that. But when given the opportunity to sell to a big retailer who might not have the most squeaky clean reputation, we'll just do it. I know because I get these brands all the time. Like this one t-shirt brand. I thought cute t-shirts. Okay. Slightly sustainable. Oh, I, I could wear that one. And they were like, let us know what your selects are. We'll send you anything. So then I go and look and they're stocked at a company that I don't like. And I told them, you do know this company's on the pay up list. And then they wrote me back some bullshit. And we're like, well, by working with this company, we're spreading the message of our goodness, blah, blah, blah. And I say, yeah, you can keep yeah. the t-shirts. Fuck that. Fuck yeah. That. <laughs> and so, you know, I get that sort of stuff from brands. And then there are also brands that are like, no, you're on the pay up list. We're not going to sell to you. And that we need so many different people moving at that level and refusing mm-hmm. to like work with bad brands and bad retailers. And 
we're not having enough of that. And I'm hoping that when people wake up and realize like we all have skin in the game here, maybe we can have a little bit more of that. Totally, totally. And I'll just say like real talk for anyone who's listening to this, who's like, well, a big brand like that reached out to me to sell to them. Uh, How can I turn down this opportunity of a lifetime? I'm going to be honest. They're probably presenting it to you that way. It is not the opportunity of a lifetime. They're going to order from you once or twice. It's going to do really well. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to copy it because Mm -hmm. you're never going to give them those sky high margins that they want. Yeah. And that'll be the end of it. That is so funny that you would say that because um, I, one of my friends was saying that she used to work for a group that sort of does manufacturing and supplying for all the big stores. And this, this group is notoriously shady and notoriously private. And what they do is a store will say, okay, we want to make these garments and they'll do all the manufacturing for you. Just show them design, they get it done. They don't Mm -hmm. tell you anything about the factories or any of that stuff. It's all very shady, but they'll, they'll do it for you. And so, um, one of my friends had worked at that company and she told me that they used to visit this store in another country that was once an independent store. And I remember when this store was independent because somebody I know used to work at this store and it was cool. It was a cool boutique and their buyers for this very shady part of the brand go there on inspiration trips and buy all of their merchandise. And Eventually, the store that they were sort of raiding for inspiration got usurped by a bigger umbrella brand that they were representing. Mm -hmm. So all along, they were visiting this little boutique, you know, stealing from them. And then eventually, they just sort of absorbed them into the umbrella. And like that's it's just so bizarre to see those sorts of things happen. And the person that I know that used to work at that boutique actually now works for a different umbrella brand by the same company. So it's like these Uh mega companies be circling in like sharks, even when you don't even realize that they're doing that. Totally. They'll rip off your stuff. And then eventually they'll be like, well, we're going to keep ripping you off. So why don't you just sell the whole business to us? (laughs) Yeah. And see your, your life's work, like kind of turn into something that you didn't exactly. want it to be. We'll, we'll, give you, we'll give you a pittance and you won't have to worry about us ripping you off anymore. How does that sound? I mean, I guess for some people it's like, finally, I don't have to worry about that anymore. Exactly. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I will say like, uh, I, you know, Aja knows the first company I worked for in my career, but I'm not going to name them here. And, you know, we would go on but buying you know trips. them too. <laughs> you all know them very well. We would go on buying trips where we would literally, you know, we would go see some vendors and stuff, but primarily – we would just go from store to store buying stuff with the intention of copying it in some way or another. And at a certain point, you know, we had corporate credit cards, right, and had the company name on it. The company had to swap them out to just have our personal names on it and not the company underneath. Because people Be- get mad. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I get it. So I, you know, the, the primary goal there was to always copy something else. I mean, yeah. real talk. Like someone would come and put – a photo from a magazine on your desk and be like, I want this in stores. Like that, like that was the practice for a really long time. And I always felt like it was kind of fucked up. Mm -hmm. Not kind of, like 100% fucked up. I mean, I have friends who are makers, artists, designers, that kind of stuff. And it felt, it felt yucky to me. So I would always try to not do that and avoid those projects and like Mm -hmm. work around it and not go buy samples unless they were vintage, like that kind of thing. And my boss was like, I'm worried that you're not creative enough. 
And you're like, this is not creativity. Yeah, guys, this is not creativity. Like, I I still think about that. And, like, I would love to run into her somewhere and be like, remember that time? I don't know. It was, like, 15 years ago. You said that to me. (laughs) I've been stewing on it since then. And I really have a response, you know? I just want to tell you, stealing other people's work will never be creativity, you know? No, (laughs) no. And that was, like, that was, you know, the incentive. And, like, I'm going to tell you, that is everywhere. That is every big retailer out there. They will go buy stuff from one another and copy it. One of my friends was talking about how the company <laughs> she worked for would go to like Zara and H&M and you name it. Every fast fashion retailer out there buy things and then bring them in and be like, we need to copy this. So we're talking about like a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. That's why kind of – that's the other thing about what we see out there these days is that like 99% of it is kind of the same Well, the funny thing about that is that I was actually joking about um, how in my newsletter, I was talking about how um, basically Shein is like undercutting all of like H&M, Zara, they are, they are usurping that business. Mm -hmm. And it did make me laugh a little bit. So I, I can actually read you an excerpt. This is my Patreon newsletter. And Basically, my my newest favorite genre of like ridiculousness is she and Zara dupes, and so <laughs> that's a, that's a segment of the that. internet. And I wrote <laughs> she and is coming for Pearson and Ortega's fortune. And while I think it's my while I think it's the horror show of fast fashion truly bottoming out, I am also laughing to myself because I bet they are so mad about it. Imagine you are a billionaire. You built your fortune from exploiting others and ripping off brands that don't have the same power as you. Everything's going great until a more exploitive company comes along and starts undercutting you and making more money because they don't have physical stores. Don't get me wrong. I hate them all, but I do find it funny. Side note, exploitation is never funny, but billionaires getting duped at their own game certainly is. Oh my God, it so is. And like, can I just tell you over the past few years, how many meetings I've sat in at different jobs that was like, how can we get what Zara has? And I was like, guys, these literally, this is no joke. They have people on boats crossing the Pacific Ocean, sewing in labels. Oh, wow. Isn't that, that crazy? Is, that is horrific. That yeah. is absolutely, but it doesn't surprise me. And this is the same company where somebody, you know, I think it was a factory in Turkey and people, someone bought a coat and a factory worker had sewn a note into the coat saying they're withholding our wages. This isn't fair. And someone also sewed, and I'm sorry, trigger warning. If you hate grossness, it's coming. Someone sewed a rat into a Zara dress once as well. Wow. Like that tells you everything you need to know about how this company treats their employees, no matter what they say, when it gets to the point where people are sewing rats into clothing, first of all, that tells you the factory is full of rats, which means it's probably not a very clean place. And Mm -hmm. second of all, that's a pretty, that is a pretty loud message being sent. Mm -hmm. You don't Mm -hmm. just accidentally sew a rat into the hem of the dress. No, definitely not. Definitely not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, it's interesting because like like Zara is – I mean, like, I I know this word sounds like hyperbole, but Zara's pretty evil. Like, like yeah. there is no there is no real thought into, like, the planet, its people, the impact of that business, ethics around, like, intellectual property, right? It's just, it's just like, we, we make tons of shit. We make tons of money off of it. And I think, you know, when we, we're 
in a great moment right now that I hope continues to pick up momentum where we're all like, why do billionaires exist, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's, it's unethical, right? Like, that's the understatement of the year. It's just wrong. Yet no one ever talks about – like, they'll talk about Jeff Bezos or they'll Elon Musk. They'll talk about Bill Gates. They'll talk about right. Elon Musk. Nobody talks about Stefan Pearson or Exactly. Ortega. Exactly. That people – there are people on this planet who have made billions of dollars selling $20 clothes. When you do the math there, it's an ugly story. It's a really ugly story, especially when brands that like want to take, you know, sustainability and make it their entire brand can still not ensure that all of their garment workers are paid mm-hmm. a living wage. And mm-hmm. that's H&M. They cannot ensure that. No, Primark, same thing, cannot ensure it. But yet they're all going really hard for the conscious collection. We are the most sustainable brand in the world, but you can't ensure that you're paying people. No payment is non-negotiable. Like I tell people this all the time. Imagine you had a job and sometimes your employer decided that they weren't going to pay you. How mad would you be? You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm going to be, I I told you about a company that I worked for that Mm -hmm. you were surprised to hear was bad news. And periodically that CEO would text like the leadership team, like myself included late at night to be like, you all might have to take a salary cut next week. Oh, that's crappy. And like, I still would have been able to pay my rent and live. But imagine like if like you are literally living hand to mouth. Yeah, that's, that's horrible. And would they ever take a salary cut? Yeah, exactly. Because they should be the first person to take the salary cut. If you can't pay your employees, you shouldn't be paying yourself. Yeah, well, I agree. The thing is, like Zara or Primark or H&M, they could pay their workers. Yeah. They're choosing not to. They really could. And they wouldn't make as big of a profit. If they wanted to keep prices the same, there'd be no profit. That's the thing. Because you can't sell clothing at that price and make a profit. But you don't get to do all the things. And also, when it comes to the amount of clothing being produced, the fashion industry produces 100 billion items of clothing a year. Now, there's a good time to tell you there's only... 7.9 billion humans on this planet and 50% of the planet lives on $5 and 50 cents a day, which means that they can in no way participate in this cycle. Absolutely. So, you know, there is so much clothing being sold, so much clothing not being sold and Mm -hmm. so many resources being taken from the global South to produce clothing that is not meant to last that probably you know, a good portion of it will not get sold. And uh, then some of it will get dumped right back on the global South where it creates ecological disasters, particularly on the continent of Africa. So in general, this this system is a real garbage fire. <laughs> it really is. And sometimes literally a garbage fire. Um, yes, that too. Oh my goodness. You're, there was, there is a, a, a landfill in Ghana that has been on fire. Like, And it also filled up the landfill, like the fashion waste that flows into Ghana filled up the landfill years ahead of schedule. But additionally, there was a devastating fire as well. And it's just like, this is not how we're supposed to be living, people. This is not how anyone is supposed to live. Yeah. And if you think so, in general, about 30% of the clothes that the industry makes every year never get sold to anyone. So like the math already starts to not make sense. Like how could you make billions of dollars and only sell two thirds of the stuff you make one and half of that is sold on sale. 
how are you making billions of dollars? Oh, because you're not paying people. Exactly. That is exactly. And that's the retailers, they don't want to talk about that. That's an ugly story. So they're instead, they're like, look at this shirt we made out of recycled plastic bottles. Or look at this well we once built in one of the traditionally pillaged countries that we manufacture (laughs) it. Meanwhile, as someone pointed out to me recently, I can't even remember who it was. Oh, was it Joe Lawrence? I can't remember. I did a podcast and someone made the very valuable point the reason why they probably have to build the well is because the river is now contaminated so people can't actually get their water oh, from it. For sure. For sure. Yeah. It's not even and it, it, is that reparations for what they've done? Absolutely not. No. Like cleaning the river and paying environmental justice fees for every place where they manufacture that would look somewhat restorative, but no no, let's let's pat them on the back for like, "Ooh, we did this one thing." <laughs> That one time. Yeah, that one time we did one thing in one of the countries we manufacture in. Meanwhile, we manufacture in like hundreds of factories all over the world. But yeah, sure. totally, totally. They really, the fashion industry really benefits from people not understanding these things. That That is the most truest thing that I've probably heard this week. Like the, the layers of not understanding really, really work in favor of fashion continuing to do whatever it wants. Oh, absolutely. You know, so I, I'm not going to name the company, but a friend who works for a big fast fashion retailer that makes stuff all over the world, but does a lot of production in India, mm-hmm. uh, sent me a screenshot of a company-wide email that I'm totally not supposed to see, so I'm not naming them. Yep. And it was saying like, you know, hey, first off, you're all coming back to work in the office in real life. Uh, we don't want anybody working from home anymore during the pandemic. But secondly, um, you know, we're really grateful for how much stuff India has made for us during the pandemic, um, which, I mean, I could go off on that for like a hundred years about. Yeah. If we all have to shelter at home, why is it safe for, for this group of people to be making stuff the whole time? Exactly. And then the next sentence is like, but I don't know if you've heard, basically, you know, the pandemic is really bad in India right now. So we are announcing an opportunity for all of the employees to donate towards a fund to buy ventilators for India. And I was like, oh, wow, what a what a blessed opportunity. How, how much money is, you're not going to tell me the company, obviously, right. but I would like to know how much money the person who owns the company is worth. Right, right. Because you're telling employees to... If you put the company in the notes, I'll look it up really quickly on my phone. I just want to, I, I, I feel like we need the numbers here. Put the company in the show notes because I'd like <laughs> to see it. I'm going to look up who owns them and we're going to see how much money that person is worth as they are asking their employees. Can, can we do that? Here, Maybe? I'm going to, I'm going to message you. Yeah, I'll chat you right there. Um, it's. <laughs> It's it's who you think it is. Okay. I know that that company makes a couple billion oh, okay. dollars a year. So, mm-hmm. Yep, that guy. I've taken several great quotes from that that person and put them in my book, um, <laughs> where I'm talking about like greenwashing and whatnot. So I'm just gonna see net worth. Up, uh, yep, worth 1.2 billion. So yep. this is a billionaire. Um, he could probably use a hundred thousand a hundred million dollars and just buy ventilators if he if he really wanted to he could do this and this person has also been very good about not being associated with their brand like you have to you had to dig very hard to figure out who he was basically for a long amount of time so that doesn't surprise me at all but yes someone worth 1.2 billion is asking 
their employees who on average probably make thirty to $60,000 a year to donate their money to buy ventilators. Wonderful. This is also a company that canceled almost their entire on order before the, like as the pandemic began, pay they absolutely yep. refused to acknowledge the pay up movement on mm-hmm. any level. Mm-hmm. This is a company who I would literally never give a dime to yeah, because I of w- that. I would never. I mean, I... I used to, you know, obviously buy in different ways because they're an umbrella brand and I would never, ever listen to a single thing they ever said, ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, I mean, I, I, uh, last year around this time, I decided to go look at a lot of different brands that I'd shopped for that I knew were fast fashion, right? But I'd shopped from them in the past mm-hmm. and kind of see what they were saying on their websites around you know, res- social responsibility, sustainability, all of that stuff, right? Um, knowing, as I did it, that even the companies that were going to have 20 pages and videos and all kinds of other stuff were 99% talking nonsense, right? Yeah. But, but just to see who was putting the effort into it, at least. And I will tell you that this particular company has, you have to dig deep on their website. They have one page and it's like, we buy from brands that are eco-friendly. We use LED light bulbs in our warehouse. I'm like, wow. Uh, I quoted that in my book and the greenwashing section. <laughs> so I, I actually did those quotes so that people would put the quotes into Google and then go and look up who those companies were. Because I think if you just hand people information, they're kind of like, oh, that's great. I know that now. But if you get people sort of involved in wanting to know, because one thing the internet tells me is that people are very nosy. Um, and if you <laughs> sort true. of lead them to do that work, they'll get into it and then they'll start doing more on their own. So that was why I didn't say like who the brands were. Mm-hmm. Um, and also because I don't generally name brands on my page. And I do that for various reasons. One, the Instagram algorithm is like, you're talking badly about this brand. Let's market them to your entire audience. Um, so. Yes, I agree. <laughs> noticed this trend. Some of the ads I've been getting recently, I'm like, damn it. I should have never said Zara. Yeah, I don't like this company. <laughs> but know. suddenly my entire readership is being spammed with their ads. Yeah. So that's not good. Yeah. But I also don't notice, I don't name brands often because I want people to do some of that legwork themselves. I don't want to just always be like spoon feeding information to people. Like once you're involved in this conversation, you need to go out and do it yourself. I think when people want everything sort of spoon fed to them, that's still a consumerist attitude because the Mm -hmm. majority of people who are brand new to my page, I get people just showing up and being like, now where do I shop? And I'm like, that's not the point of my page. The point of my page is to get you thinking about why the first question you asked me is now, where do you shop? <laughs> yes, I love that. That's something, you know, like I would say 50% of the messages I receive are like, can you tell me where to shop? And I'm like, no, actually, that's like, there are plenty of other people out there who have done that work or created databases. Like you can go check out Good On You or Remake or there are influencers out there who will like, you know, you can join their Patreon and they'll give you a list of places to shop, whatever. Like, I'm not here for that. My yeah. goal is to get you to shop less. Yeah, exactly. I I do have a list of, on Patreon, but I don't even really focus on that much on Patreon because the vast majority of us still have too much clothing. Like the entire pandemic, there were weeks where I would just alternate like the same two outfits until the end of the week. And what <laughs> it taught me was that my, basically my entire adult life, I've been buying too much clothing. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. It's it's on my mind all the time. I mean, when you're actually working in the industry, yeah, there is so much pressure to constantly wearing the newest, latest, greatest thing. And so the clothes the behind me, like if I could if I could envision the mountain of my un unloved clothing behind me, I mean it 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 moves me, you know? Yeah. It motivates me to change my ways. And so I I would love for us all to break up with some of these ideas that we have. Like a few weeks ago on Instagram, you posted about your book release party and how your first thought, which is totally many of us would have had, was okay, I need something new to wear for it, right? And then you were like, wait, no, that's that's I actually don't need to buy something new to wear for this book release party. And I that's like a major step forward. Consumerism is a hard habit to break because it's it's sold to us from like the minute we land on this planet. Like the minute we land on Earth, consumerism's in your ear, like, here kid, want a credit card? You know? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I I get that like it's it's hard to break up with these systems. And I share that. So that people understand that like I still get that urge to be like, oh, I have this this book party for my first book. I need a new dress. You've got a closet full of dresses and they're great. Wear one of those dresses because they're awesome. That's ridiculous. And once I caught myself, I was just like, you are being truly ridiculous. And then I had a laugh about it. But I thought, let me just share this and, and let people know like, no, I'm not perfect either. I still get the urge. But I will say as someone who talks about these issues all day, every day, the urge is not there as much because I have to read about this stuff constantly. I mean, <laughs> yeah, even yeah. today, I, I did a panel in town in London and I, I came home because it takes me some time. I live, I don't live in the center. I'm, I'm out on, I'm on the outskirts. So mm-hmm. I came home from the panel and on my way home, I had to go through like Covent Garden and Covent Garden is a, is a big shopping district. And I thought, let me just go in some stores. And I have to say the job I have has successfully killed the urge. I went and I like to go and look. I always look at stores. I tell people that I go into fast fashion stores. Um, I want to see how much polyester they're using. I want to mm-hmm. see what colors they're pushing. I want to see which of my favorite designers they're ripping off this season. Um, and so I go in which indie designer is getting ripped off by them. So I always go into these stores. So I tell people, don't be surprised if you do see me in that fast fashion store, but I won't be leaving with anything. And one thing I notice now after many years away from participating in the system in a way which sustains it is that I notice how much polyester everything is. I notice the weird smells because like (laughs) if I buy something new, it's usually from a sustainable brand and like sustainable clothing just doesn't have that same weird chemical smell that you get in a lot of those stores. I mean, I just, I go into stores now and I'm all like, it's all plastic. It's all plastic. So yeah, I have to say the urge is pretty much successfully killed. Like even if I wanted to spend money in that way, I just don't think I can do it. It doesn't appeal to me anymore. Yeah, it's true. The more you're in it, the less appealing it becomes. And I think yeah. uh, for people who are struggling to make that change, which like once again, it's a process, right? Like I didn't it wake is. up one day and I was like, that's it. I'm totally changing my life today. Like it was it was incremental for me. Uh, if you're struggling – to buy less, to break these habits that have been beaten into us, you know, 
just educate yourself more. Go watch some depressing videos and yeah. read some articles. You know, like it it will make a change. I think, you know, I recently did a series of episodes with the Or Foundation. I love them. They're the love best. Them. Uh, Liz is amazing. Liz and, is amazing. Uh, everybody I talked to with the Or Foundation, I'm like, when can we all hang out in real life? You I know, know, I think the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I love all of you. Um, and, you know, those episodes were really important to me. Like, I think people just need, like, when I first learned about Contamanto, I, it was a game changer for me. It d- made me want to double down on the work I was doing. And I was getting a lot of messages from people on Instagram who were like, I started to listen to this episode, but I got depressed, so I stopped. Or, like, I just – is there a way you can just summarize what you guys talked about so I don't have to hear the whole thing? And I was just like, no. Like, you got to hear bad news to make good news. Well, that's the short-termism that has definitely been aided in social media, right? Like, our attention spans are that much shorter now. And yeah. so it doesn't surprise me. But, yeah, people want, like, a really – neat and easy unpacking of these topics and that is impossible to do like it's, these, it's yeah it's you, complicated you, it's very complicated and you need to know the full story before you can actually really know how you can jump into it and sort of make those changes but yeah quitting fast fashion when you've been really buying into it cold <laughs> turkey i don't know too many people that have been able to do that not even myself you know but it would be like feeling guilty all the time. Yeah, and I just- it's sad. You know, you're kind of like, the thing is, because you identify and, and consumerism makes us feel like consumerism is a part of our identity. I actually remember thinking like, who will I be if I'm not buying 68 items of clothing a year? And that's <laughs> so sad, but true. Like that was my thought. And so I, um, I have to tell people like, yeah, I did have that thought. And you know what? I'm so happy now. <laughs> like that system was not making me happy. I I specifically remember every season being like, I actually really like this thing I bought last year, but I got to buy something new. Yeah, I can't be seed in this. Yeah, I've got to work too many times last year. Oh, I need something new. I need the new silhouette of jeans, which is ridiculous because all silhouettes of jeans are pretty fashionable right now. <laughs> I mean, trust me, I've been in meetings where we're like, what's the new silhouette of jeans? And it's like, I don't know, aren't jeans supposed to be classic? Isn't that like the, re- like the I don't know, isn't that the jean industry propaganda that it it's supposed been- to be classic? It has been skinny jeans for like ever. And you know what? Boot cuts coming back. Like whatever you want to wear as denim, I just say wear it because honestly, you can get away with it. And so any brand that's like, this is the new silhouette, I I think they're talking nonsense. Like there's never been a time period in my life so much where any type of denim goes. Like I, yeah. 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 Do not go buy a new pair of jeans because you saw a Refinery29 segment about like, skinny jeans are over. They're chuggy. Now you need these. Like, please don't do that. Just wear what you like. And also, I don't know. I find chuggy pretty funny. Like I'm probably (laughs) hella chuggy and I'm okay with it. Agreed. Lean into the chugginess. You know, like who cares? I feel like I know that chuggy ostensibly was created by some like teenage girls who were like wealthy and white and had a ton of privilege. But I sometimes I'm like, was it a little bit created by like big fast fashion? Like they were like, 
we need a new way to get people out there shopping. We need and, a new way to make people feel insecure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then therefore out there shopping, right? Because they, like they're so intrinsically linked. And, you know, for me, like this has been a journey just like for you. And I realized that when I was shopping the hardest, it was when I was feeling the shittiest about my life or myself or insecure about my body, my looks. Couldn't agree more. Some asshole I was dating, you know, whatever. Couldn't agree more. That's when I would be hitting the web, the Zara website. When I lived at home with my parents, like I moved back in like three times within my adult life. <laughs> Every time I lived at home, it was like, can't afford to move out. Might as well spend all my disposable income on clothing I don't need. Woo, that feels so <laughs> great. And I remember I used to like my mother, she's always thought that fast fashion was trash. And like, she used to tell me like, <laughs> why do you spend so much of your money on that horrible clothing? And I'd be like, it's what I like, leave me alone. And I just remember <laughs> like sneaking clothing in after my mom went to bed because I left it <laughs> in my car and being like, what is your life? Like, what are you doing? This is embarrassing. It's so sad, but like, we've all been there. I'd be like, I don't want my husband to know I just ordered all this stuff from Zara. So what I need to do is take it out of the box and put it in my bag and then you won't know. And like, who cares? Like, if you're hiding your fast fashion habit, it's time to like have a moment. It's time to have a moment. And I have to say like, now... The, the direction that I've taken with everything, my mother is so insufferably smug. She's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> she is the cat that got the canary and the cream because she literally, but that's also another thing. Like there's this big misconception that like people that don't have certain financial privilege are buying all the fast fashion. And that is not true at all. Thank you for bringing that up because that was going to be one of my questions. It's it's really, really not true. Like my mother grew up very modest, economically insecure background. Like really, we're talking eight brothers and siblings, Jim Crow, Alabama, single parent. Like, so they, they did not have the money. And I remember fast fashion becoming more of the norm. And my mom being like, this stuff is cheap. You know what I mean? Like she was always Mm -hmm. the person and she still is where her favorite place to shop is the local charity shop where I volunteered. You know, she will go there and find the brands that, you know, North Face, Patagonia, and that is her charge. Like finding something like that and getting it for three to $5. That is like, that's what she's into. And so people have this idea that fast fashion is spurred on by people that are, you know, not trying to spend all their money or whatever. And that's not true. It takes a lot of money to be the person who buys 68 fast fashion items a year. That takes a lot of money. And even if you don't feel like you're like financially privileged, you're still wasting your money on it. You know, you still have enough to, to basically throw it away in that way. It's true. It's true. I mean, I actually did an episode a long time ago with a friend of mine who worked in, who worked retail, and we talked about how, you know, when we were working retail, we didn't make any money because people who work in those stores are not paid shit. They yeah. don't have benefits, you know, all this stuff. And like that employee discount motivates you to buy all this stuff that you really can't afford 
because it's there in front of you. And like, if you're a team player, you're going to wear those clothes. And, you know, companies make a lot of money off of their employees. employees. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody told me that Topshop used to be like that, apparently. Like employees, particularly like teenage girls, were like feeding so much of their paycheck right back into the company. And by the way, my sister worked for one of the brands that's associated with the place where you used to work. And she said the same thing. She said there was so much peer pressure within that store to feed a certain percentage of your paycheck right back in. And oh, yeah, totally. And, you know, I started working for that company in the stores and then moved into being a buyer and working at their home office. And, you know, one of these things we would always have were these special employee discount periods, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure your sister has told you about. And as I moved into the home office and saw the behind the scenes and the financial strategy behind everything we were doing, we would turn those special employee appreciation events on to drive more sales. Yep. Like that money was coming right back into the company and it felt so exploitive. By the way, my younger sister also told me when she worked at that store, if the clothing like arrived damaged, they would make the employees repair them in the back room on their break. (gasps) So like buttons that had fallen off. She was like, if you wonder why the clothing was cheap, it's probably because I sewed your button on when it fell off from the factory. (laughs) God. Yeah. I mean, we, the amount of damages I saw working retail uh, were ridiculous. And it like a lot, it would be like you opened the box and they were already unwearable. Or like, I I specifically remember these jeans that we sold when I was working retail. Uh, And they were like a house brand. And we always had a whole wall of them. And at back to school, it would be like, you know, they'd be on sale. Like you get two for $80 or something. Like they weren't even that cheap, really, like for our customer, but like they were cheaply made. And I remember this woman... coming in with her teenage daughter and she was like, I need to do a return. And I was like, okay, cool. So she puts a pair of these jeans up there and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And you know, the whole ass had blown out of them. Like they were like chaps now. And I, I wasn't surprised to this because we would always call them the ass blowout jeans. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll process the return. And she's like, oh no, no, that's not it. And then she shows me another one that had like split all the way to the waistband. And the girl was like, all I was doing is walking up the stairs. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, I'm embarrassed. I'm so sorry. You know, then she's like, oh no, that's not the last pair. And she pulls out another pair. There's a third pair of these jeans being returned. One leg is about a foot shorter than the other. And I'm just like, what do you even say at this point? What do you even say? You know, my friend Abby was talking about, so Abby and Rupert um, are my two friends that I talk about in the book, and they used to own a clothing brand, and now they do graphic design and art, but the brand was great, but they talk about the trial and error of getting their samples right, and Abby was telling me one time they were in Japan, and they had to do a photo shoot wearing their own clothing, and they were like, but they weren't great samples. So it's so embarrassing when you made the clothing and you're like one arm is shorter than the other. Yeah, this this is real. This happens so much. I remember even as a buyer, the first time I got a bunch of like product development samples back, I opened the box and I almost started crying because everything was so horrible. And my boss was like, "Oh no, you just have to get used to that." (laughs) It's always disappointing. And I was like, "Really? Like now I'm extra depressed." And, and and Abby and Rupert, their their clothing was ethical. It was just trial and error because they were graphic yeah. designers who were 
running a fashion label. So they weren't totally getting, you know, they weren't going to get it right the first time. But yeah, it's, it's sad though, when this is like seasoned retail where this is happening, you know? I know, I know. And I think, you know, like I said, those jeans weren't even that cheap for the customer. Like we can say, okay, two pairs of jeans for $80 is really affordable when you know that there's like $150 jeans out there or $300 jeans, but it's not like they were five or $10 jeans. Yeah. They were, they probably cost five bucks to make. To produce. Let's, right. let's talk about also some of, some of the retail prices because people literally do not understand sometimes when, sometimes when there's something that has like an upmarket price tag, people really sort of you know, go, oh, this must be quality. And I get that mm-hmm. it's very confusing. So can you tell me a little bit now I'm like interviewing you? Can you okay, tell cool. me can you tell me a little bit about like what something would cost first, what it would be sold for? Because I think that always blows people's minds. Oh yeah. And I will tell you through my career, I have seen this change a lot. In the early days of my career, if we were talking about clothing and and keep in mind, I worked for a very big retailer that is definitely fast fashion and can get all the best pricing because they're buying the most amount of units, right? And also how big are these units that we're talking? Because what people need to understand, this is something we talk about and consume, the bigger the unit that's cheaper the price. And that's the leverage that brands use with factories is we're going to bring you this massive order. So you need to give us the best possible price per piece. And that, that idea just doesn't work. That's how factories get screwed, but that is the norm. So how big are these units? I mean, it kind of depends, right? Mm -hmm. If it's something that only comes in one size, I don't know what that would be, a poncho. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're only going to order 10,000 units, only 10,000 units, right? But let's say it comes in four, five, six, seven sizes, and you're going to do it in three, four, five colors. You're getting into 30, 40, 50,000 units. If it's like a T-shirt, it might be like 100,000 units. Okay. You know? All right, then. yeah, we're talking a lot of units. What here. about like, a dress? In- like, I would say let's let's maybe we'll do like what you paid for a dress then the units first, like what it looks like now. Oh, sure. So let's say we were going to buy today five thousand units of a dress, right? Uh huh. And um, or I would say probably we would pay. Now remember, this is this is going to include shipping it and like the the tariffs for getting in the country, all that stuff. I would say we'd probably pay $15, maybe 20, retail it for $128. So that is a markup of Aja can't do the math, but that's a huge markup. Let's it's just, a huge markup. Let's just say they're making a $100 profit on everything. Yeah, exactly. But like if we went back to say 2006, right, the early days of my career, I would say we probably would have we would still sell it for one hundred and twenty eight dollars. Let's say, or at least let's you know, let's take we are going to sell it for one hundred twenty eight dollars out of the equation. The price tag would say one hundred twenty eight dollars because that's an important distinction too. Yeah, back then we probably would have paid closer to thirty dollars for that dress, maybe even forty. Okay, right? Yeah, right. So we're seeing a huge difference here, and this is the difference. Yeah, during the uh, financial crisis, the two thousand eight recession, all of that. This was like the turning point in my career where before that we sold most of the stuff we sold at full price. And so we could afford to make nicer things and make less profit off of them up front because they were going to sell for full price anyway. The recession came. Everybody had to mark everything down for that year to get people to buy it. So what happened 
is everybody kind of got addicted to deals. Mm. It didn't help that at the same time, think about, you have to go back in time to like 2008, 2010. We're talking the golden era of Forever 21 in the United States. And that was the first first brand, by the way, where I was like, I can't do it. It's too cheap. I just, I I did it once and I thought never again. And I think that was the, that was the straw that broke Aja's back when it came to like fast fashion. It's just too cheap. I mean, you could go into a Forever 21 store now and buy a tank top for $1.90. Yeah. $1.90. Yep. Think about that. It still took sewing and materials and shipping around and inspection and cutting and all of that stuff. $1.90. So Forever 21 comes in and is like, hey, guess what, guys? Come into our store. Give us 50 bucks. You're going to leave with a whole bag full of clothes. And the retailer I worked for was like, well, we're not Forever 21. That is like not aspirational, right? But what happened was a lot of the customers of that brand were like, well, I actually like going to Forever 21 because I get five things there. I come into your store and I get one. So it was like, okay, we got to start selling more stuff on sale. Yeah, You know, we didn't want to say, hey, we're going to start. We're just, you know what? Forever 21 is selling all of their t-shirts for $4.90. We're just going to retail ours at $4.90 because that wasn't aspirational. It wasn't Brand, on brand, right? It would be brand damaging. But people love a sale. People love a sale. What we're going to do is we're going to bring in all those shirts and mark them for 30 or $40. And then we're just 90% of the time, they're going to be $10 or $5. We're going to have sales on sales on sales. We're going to be like, today's National Donut Day. Here's an extra coupon. Or like, look at this huge all-store sale, like that kind of stuff. And in order to do that and still make billions of dollars, you need to sell even more units and you need to sell them at a higher margin. So the stuff got cheaper and lower quality. And I saw the shift in the quality and fit of the product, just that like we weren't even bothering to fit it anymore because that costs money to have a fit model and do another round of samples and just everything got lower quality. But the prices on those price tags they stay the same. same. Yeah, you cannot you can't spot fast fashion by the price on the price tag. Ever. I also I also remember that Forever 21 was was underselling you all because I did one of my one purchases was a tank top which I had seen um in a store associated with that brand and I remember thinking I really want this tank top but I want to pay $30 for a tank top that I know is probably not made in the best circumstances even then I knew and I still kind of turned off because it wasn't very easy for me to really rectify that and you know so I went to Forever 21 and lo and behold they have an identical tank top now the quality was horrendous I think your quality might have beat theirs back then because I did buy the tank top and I wore it once because it was horrible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was the identical style and everything. I remember it was like it was like a typical rib knit tank top and it had a floral applique, like lace and bead floral applique up by the shoulder. Oh my God, I know this top so you, well. You know it? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> And it, it, at your store, you had it in this really bright turquoise with like green. It was really quite nice looking, but I just thought, I don't want to pay $28 for that. I just don't. Mm-hmm. And so 
I remember being like, wow, they've got the same one. And I bought it. And I was like, yeah, but it's total trash. Like, <laughs> I don't, I'm going to wear this once. And that was when I was like, I got to stop with this store. I can't do it. I just can't. Yeah. No, it was – they. I mean, Forever 21 was ridiculous. I, yeah. I've worked over the years with a few people who worked in the buying department at Forever 21. and I, That place sounded like a shit show. Yeah. I still can't understand what was happening there. Like, I still – I'm going to tell you that uh, – Here's a confession I've never talked about, I think, on the podcast. Uh, around 2010, I was like, I cannot work for this company I'm working for anymore. It's super toxic, and I hate where I live, and I just I hate everything about my life. They don't pay me. A lot of my friends who worked with me had been gradually going to other companies where they would instantly make more money and have a better quality of life. So I was like, I should, I should make that jump. And a recruiter from Forever 21 reached out to me. And I was like, oh, okay, like I can move to LA. I could work at Forever 21. I have no idea what it's like, but like how bad could it be compared to where I'm working right now, right? So Mm -hmm. a coworker of mine was like, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. She works as a buyer at Forever 21 now. You should call her. So I emailed her and she said, hey, I'm going to call you after work because they read our emails. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. So she called me and she was like, do not take this job. Is the worst place ever. They ring a bell when we're allowed to eat lunch. They ring a bell when we have to stop. Uh, they will make us come into work at 6 a.m. and work until 10 p.m. We, when we travel, they make us take the red eye and come into work and work all day after that. And then, like, you know, work all night. And there's no, there's no work-life balance. Uh, everything is so chaotic here and it's just horrible. And I was like, wow, like, so you're saying it's worse than where I work right now. And she was like, Yeah, like I look back at those as like the good old days. And wow. that that was the first conversation I'd had with someone who'd worked there. And then when I moved to LA, I met a lot of people who had worked there at some point and they're, they all had horrible things to say. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Like no, no fundamental value of any humans. The, the funniest part for me about that brand was that I immediately was like, this is sweatshop goods. Like this, it just Yeah, is. oh yeah, instantly. But they had the nerves to print a Bible verse on their back. Like that <laughs> to me was just the like. Irony, the irony, right? of being like, we sell sweatshop clothing and then we also ply you with Christian Bible verses. <laughs> it's just like, what? I know. And then we'll sell you a feminist shirt. Yeah, we'll sell you a feminist shirt oh, made in a sweatshop. Totally. And also here's your bag with your Bible verse. Yeah. I just thought, I can't, I can't with this company. I just hate them. Here's the interesting thing about Forever 21, right? Like I think Forever 21, maybe not as much now, but for a long time was shorthand for low quality sweatshop clothing, right? Mm. Like semi-disposable. We know nothing is disposable. That 190 tank top is going to be around a lot longer than you. Yeah. But the thing is like all the other big retailers out there are getting their stuff made in the same factories by the same vendors. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. That's the thing you learn that is shocking. Like, we would constantly, I mean, I remember specifically when I was working in shoes, I would do a lot of product development and I would go to the shoe vendor and I would see Forever 21 stuff there that they had developed. And a month later, I would go into a Forever 21 store and I would see stuff that I had developed for my retailer at Forever Mm. 21. Well, Well, the thing I always noticed as well, and I always used to tell people this, like most of the clothing that you see in certain stores, you can actually find brand new on like eBay. Like this was way before Shein. And I used to always go and look and see what it was selling for on eBay, brand new, new with tags, because I knew 
that it was going to be shipping directly from China and somebody from that factory was probably getting a little wage for their family, which I fully support. Like if you're, if you're going to have a horrible life and you manage to steal a box of seconds and sell them, I'm like, get your money, boo. But I always began to notice that like, oh, okay. So this stuff is clearly coming from China and it's being sold for this price. But in actuality, it costs probably about this amount to manufacture. And Mm -hmm. this person is showing you the true price and the value of these goods. Oh, what a mess it all is. Yeah. It's interesting. So, you know, we know, we know that these clothes have a really high markup on them, you know, like they're not an actual value to the customer. But what yeah. we assume is like, well, because I've had people, you know, come at me on social media about this. Well, you know, those companies, they have businesses to run and they have expenses. That's why they mark stuff up. Like the amount of people who have come to me on social media to mansplain uh, margin and profitability to me, I'm like, uh, dude, yeah, I could like write a book about that. Please, please do not explain to me how markup works. I understand it. By the way, I was once doing a talk and a man mansplained sustainability to me. He was working oh behind the bar. And I was just like, wow. And I was sitting with this this material scientist I really respect who was also doing the talk with me. And I looked at her and said, do we just get mansplained to? Like, we are two arguably experts in the field. But yes. You do understand how <laughs> yeah, sustainability yeah, works. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, please, please come and explain to me that the stuff that you buy in the store, you're not paying the price it costs to make. You're like, really? Wow. Mm-hmm. I can't believe that. So, you know, this is something that people come at me like, well, of course they have to take a markup. They have a company to run it. I'm like, Let, let's let's get it on some brass tacks here. Yes, they have a company to run. They have employees to pay. But much like their employees making those clothes, they don't pay shit to the people who are designing them, buying them planning the finances, working in the stores, working in the warehouses, et cetera. Those, that stuff is just as disposable to them as the people sewing the clothes in other countries. And mm-hmm. they have little regard for any of those people. So I want to assure you that all of that extra money, all that markup money, all that profit is going to one small Person. select group of people. Exactly. Yeah. And I always, you know, tell people the system isn't actually working for any of us. Mm-mm. And these and these people that don't care about the people at the at the you know bottom of the food chain that they're treating like crap, they don't care about anyone else. And you know, you see it. It's weird. Like we can't see ourselves in the person making the clothing for whatever reason. I think fast fashion has done that, where we just do not humanize what's behind the clothing, and you know, we are all disposable in, in this system, mm-hmm, seriously. Mm-hmm. And and people need to understand that. You always see it when, like, it impacts over here. So, like, um, earlier this year, ASOS bought Topshop mm-hmm. because Topshop's been in the can for a while. And so, finally, this merger went through and Topshop is now part of ASOS. Overnight, thousands of people lost their jobs, some who had been working for Topshop for decades. And people on social media were like, you know, ASOS was like sort of gloating, like, ooh, welcome Topshop to the ASOS family. They always call it a family so they can exploit people. And people were like, my friend lost their job. And and I'm just like, but can we just zoom out and, and understand that like, this is why the system as a whole is bad? Because this happens to garment workers every day and we should actually care about that and not just when your friend or your neighbor or the person next door 
finds themselves getting shafted by this company. Totally. I mean, I guess if that's people's entry into starting to figure it out, but I agree. Like, I don't know if it's an entry. I think they just kind of stop there, you know? <laughs> that's, yeah. Well, that's, that's frustrating, but I do, yeah. I do see a lot of it. You know, I told you before I started recording that I lost my job at the beginning of the pandemic and, uh, you know, I was furloughed for a few months and then I was like officially let go a week before the end of the second fiscal quarter for the year. And, you know, I get this. Oh, the timing is just so ironic, isn't it? I know. I know. I get this talk. I, you know, I'm let go over the phone uh, because it's a pandemic. Like things are just really hard and this is what we have to do to keep going. And, uh, you know, we we were really grateful for all your work, but we just, you know, we just, we have to protect the business, you know, this kind of thing. And I'm like, okay, okay. So I get let, I get let go from this company in the middle of a pandemic. They cut off my insurance immediately during a pandemic. Just want to add during a pandemic, I did not have Mm -hmm. health insurance, which for me was going to cost like a thousand dollars a month, but for them would cost nothing in comparison to their income. And, you know, they gave me two weeks of severance. So like, just, it was like peace bye. And I already knew that this company had canceled, just hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of orders, probably even more in the early days of the pandemic. And we're still continuing to squeeze factories on pricing and terms and stuff like that. And a week later, I wake up to like a thousand texts from different people in my life who are like, hey, did you see your former employer's earnings report for the quarter? And I'm like, no, why would I want? And they're like, no, here, click on this link. And it was like blank company (laughs) – makes surprise, that was in quotes, the word surprise was in quotes, $34 million profit for Q2. And I was just like, those motherfuckers, I've never said that word on the show. We're going for it today. <laughs> well, I, you know what? It, it If there's ever a company that deserves that, right, it sounds like it's well placed. Right. Because I was like, that $34 million in so-called profit is all those canceled orders, literally taking food out of the mu- out of the mouths of their garment workers, probably yeah. closing down a lot of factories, which then means tons of people losing their jobs for good, and then mm-hmm. you know living in even worse circumstances, laying off and furloughing workers here in the United States, mm-hmm. you know, and probably in other countries as well, in their warehouses, you name it, cutting all these costs that have a major human impact, so that they can make a so called surprise thirty four million dollar profit in a pandemic where a lot of companies did not do well. Yeah. Yeah. Horrible. Like why would you ever shop that brand? Why would you ever give that company a dime of your money? Nothing you are telling me surprises me at all. And like, you know, my, my sister worked there retail, obviously. And the stories that she's told me about the poor treatment there, like, first of all, when she was working there, one of her managers had everyone clocking out for breaks and lunch which was not a part of the retail deal in the state that we grew up in. And when my sister told me that after she finally quit, (laughs) couldn't take it anymore, I wrote a very strong letter to the general counsel of the head of all of those companies telling them, you better get my sister her money. And they did. (laughs) Good. The thing that's sad about that, though, is how many other employees actually went back and did it. Did they go back and back pay everyone that they were making clock out for breaks and lunch? You know, like, did they actually do that? No, I bet you they did it. So they actually just took employees time. And because this one manager just decided to do it. Another thing that happened when my sister was working there, 
I've, I've had to be like my family lawyer before on many accounts. <laughs> like I, that's who I've been throughout my life. And I was, I was literally like 21 at the time um, and had no like legal background. Um, so my sister was working retail and one night before closing this, the store was located in a mall and there were a bunch of restaurants, a drunk couple came in and they had clearly had too much to drink at dinner or whatever. The woman was swaying and swaggering and they were like, Oh God. And they were trying to like close, but whatever. So she takes all these dresses into the fitting room Oh no! <laughs> and she comes out looking really sheepish and all the dresses are on the floor and my sister goes in and there's a puddle on the floor. <gasps> I knew it. The woman <sighs> urinated in the fitting room. And my younger sister's manager tried to make my sister clean it up. Oh. And my sister went and huddled in a corner and called me and said, what do I do? Help. She's trying to make me clean up urine. And I said, no. I was like, that is a health and safety hazard. She needs to hire a hazmat group to come in and do that. You should not be dealing with human waste. That is not a part of your job. Tell her that you've called your lawyer and that they say that you won't be doing that today. And so my younger sister went out and and said, nope, not doing it. And for days, the manager harassed every employee to clean up the fitting room. Ugh. And everyone took the line that my sister took. But what annoys me is I'm literally a 21-year-old on the phone. Like, why couldn't some of the older people there just have stood up and had a little backbone? Eventually, the manager did end up cleaning it herself, as she should have. You mm -hmm. know, like, she could have called corporate and been like, look, we need to get a hazmat, you know, we, we need to get someone in here who deals with human waste um, because I'm not doing it. But she instead was going to try and force these like 19 year old shop girls to do it. Yeah, that's crazy. But like not not unheard of. I mean, it doesn't surprise you, does it? Doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, I've had some interactions with poop working retail. Uh, wow. Yeah, I know. I know. And once again, it wasn't like the manager was like, I'll handle it. It was like, can you deal with this? And I'm like, uh, this is like serious human waste right here. The answer is always no. If you're a retail worker and you're listening to this and someone asks you to clean up human waste, you tell them that that is a health and safety hazard and that that is not a part of your job, and you've consulted a lawyer with it, and they'll drop it when you say that. Exactly. And I will just add here that you're probably afraid to say no because you think you're going to lose your job. And guess what? That would be illegal. So yeah. don't be afraid to speak up and protect yourself. Don't clean up human waste. Make your manager do it if they want it clean. If they want it, yeah. Or get them to get – I mean, honestly, yeah, corporate should be bringing someone in. Um, exactly. I know for the company where your sister worked, they absolutely would not have done that. They would have rather yeah. burn the store down probably than spend the money. <laughs> um, but uh, – and just start over, right? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't – I think – I mean, something I think about a lot, I talk about a lot in podcasts is just like so many of us, no matter what our jobs are, we feel like we don't have any power or agency or agency. And that like we, I mean, I was, I honestly, I was having a conversation with Dustin about this today about how I've moved around the country for so many jobs and done things on their terms or let them pay me whatever they wanted to pay me because I was like too desperate to work there. Like I just felt yeah. like, well, it's either this or I'm homeless. So I guess I'm going to do this and they can yeah. do whatever they want to me. And I think, you know, I, I hope you, know, I read a lot of articles about like this great resigning or whatever it is. And I'm like, I mm -hmm. don't know if that's really happening right now, but 
man, it would be great if it is. I have to say I wanted, and that was actually the thing that kind of turned me off. So I applied for a job at the place where you used to work when I was like 19. And it was ridiculous because my commute would have been ridiculous. I was still living in Virginia. I didn't have a car. And so I would have had to commute on the Metro every time I had a shift and like what they were paying at the time, the Metro would have eaten most of that. But I was just like, oh, this is a really cool store. I really want to work here. And I remember the manager being really like, you know, when like somebody is acting superior in a way where they think that like, they're like, you know, being like cool, but you're actually like, you're a knob. That's how I felt about it. She was like, I have it. She was like, we've had a lot of applications, but I have a good feeling about you. And I just remember being like, you know what? Fuck this place. I don't want to work here. Like the way you're acting, like I should be so grateful for a retail job already tells me that there is massive abuse of power going on here. Like I, I just, and, and I withdrew my application and was like, nope, I think this is probably a bad place to work. Oh. I feel like this is a bad place. Oh yeah. That company, but I think a lot of the retailers out there really depend or rely on, I guess, their employees being too young or too yeah. inexperienced to know their rights. Honestly. Um, yeah. I, and, and I think working, so I worked in TV production for the, the, first portion of my career. And I think working in TV production gave me a really keen, like, I can smell abuse of power a mile away. Like, and that's really sad because that doesn't say much about like behind the scenes and production. No. But I just, I really, really don't have a high tolerance for BS anywhere else because I had to put up with so much of it within that field. And so anytime I just feel like there might be abuse of power going on here, it just sends a radar to me that's like, run, run, run away. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and there's just so much of that happening in the fashion industry, in the retail industry. And it will be, it'll be someone who's like a store manager, Yes, but it also, who makes you clock out for your breaks exactly, when you shouldn't be clocking exactly. out. Or makes you – I remember once a manager pulling me aside and being like, listen, you've gone to the doctor for your ear infection three times this month, and I just wonder if you're, like, committed to this job. And I was like, I'm committed to hearing and being alive, and I have a really bad ear infection. Like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> I want you to not take care of your ear infection so you can sell these sweatshop clothes uh, I faster. know. Like, yeah. just the shame of it all. They should be ashamed they of themselves. They should be ashamed, ashamed. Well, okay, so that's a good transition into something I wanted to talk to you about, which is, like, every time I see – some you know a brand being called out for something or mm-hmm. even if you go onto like one of these big brands instagram profiles and someone says like hey why don't you pay up your workers or something 95 people have to jump in and defend these brands as if they're people and dear friends to them and this is an industry that refuses to see or acknowledge a vast swath of the population while still gladly taking their money. doesn't want to acknowledge that these people exist because it's not on brand for them, but they will certainly mm-hmm. get into their wallets. And yet yeah. people will jump in to protect their like so-called honor. I don't I don't get it. What It's because consumerism shits in your head, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Like, it really does. And it makes you think. And because brands have done such a fantastic job 
of humanizing themselves on social media. And I'm currently rereading Naomi Klein's No Logo, which is Ah, a phenomenal book. And it really breaks down this switch from how brands have gone from wanting to be marketed in one way to wanting to be your best friend. Mm -hmm. And so we have such strong brand identity and loyalty to certain brands for no reason, because a corporation is not a human being. Right. And we do that because we feel like I shop at this brand. So it tells the world that I'm edgy. I shop at this brand. It tells the world that I'm an artsy bohemian woman. <laughs> I shop at this, you know, which brands oh, I'm talking about. Oh, I know. About, I was right? like, I'm familiar. <laughs> Brands have done such a good job of humanizing themselves and consumerism has done such a good job of allowing us to feel like we need to defend the system at all costs because the system is us. And the lines have been blended in such a seamless way that I don't even think people really catch themselves, you know, and it's, it's a bit sad, but like, I see people just like, you know, I was saying, For instance, like the AOC dress post, which we were talking about before we started recording, (laughs) that post is my most liked post and it has earned me. That is crazy. It it is. I think last time I checked, I'm just going to go and check right now on social media and let you know the likes because last time I checked, I was just blown away by the amount of likes that post got. Okay. It's not showing... Oh, wait, here we go. Okay. Um, that dress currently has 54,299 likes. So I just <laughs> rattled that out while lying in bed, sipping a cup of tea. Like it was not meant to be a serious post. <laughs> All I said was, you know, I, I don't hate it. I don't hate AOC's dress. And it just erupted fury in people. And then other people were like, yeah, I don't hate it either. It made people think. But the funny thing about fashion and brand loyalty and whatever is that people love to write off the fashion industry as frivolous, silly Mm -hmm. women stuff, et cetera, instead of seeing its true power. And that's why we have an industry that gets away with polluting the planet. And people are like, oh, it's not that bad. No, it actually is that bad. But we've written all of this off. And so I literally will have like grown men being like... (laughs) screaming at me about like this dress is so ridiculous this does nothing she needs to do her job is ridiculous and I'm just like okay you can say that it has no impact but sir you've been screaming about a dress for two hours now. yeah exactly so <laughs> seems like it might be like moving you a little bit I here. don't know I think it's got under your skin yeah so, yeah I just I love pointing these things out to people and like the power that branding has over us which is funny because people will be like I just don't care what I wear. Like, I don't even care. And it's like, yeah, you do. You don't. Exactly. You don't. Like, if you didn't care, you'd be wearing a burlap sack. You would be like, you know what I mean? Yeah, you would wrap a sheet around yourself and belt it and go to work. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) But people love to sort of be like, oh, this has nothing to do with me. And it has everything to do with you. And that's why I wanted to write consumed because I wanted people to understand this system has enormous power and impact. It's, it, you know, is the GDP of certain countries Mm -hmm. and 
it, it really impacts humans on so many different levels. But even if you just want to look at it through a, a real rudimentary sort of summary, you know, the beginning of the clothing cycle, black and brown people are making those clothing and they're having the, the, those clothes and they're having the resources of their country stripped away because they've always been traditionally pillaged. And so you can get cotton for a really outrageously low and very unfair price there. Mm -hmm. And that comes from years of colonialism. Mm -hmm. So then the product is made, it is shipped to the global North where we consume it rapidly because the stores and the brands have sped up this selling season so that they can sell more and make more profit. But then they also say, we're just responding to consumer demand and it is totally consumer demand created by them. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so then we go through our clothing really quickly and we run out of space. We go, oh God, now I've got to get rid of something, even though really I don't know why I have this much clothing. And you donate it to a charity. A charity can only sell 10% of it. And then the other 90% gets either landfilled, which is a problem, are packed up, put on a pallet and sent to the global south, where once again, it is the problem of a non-white person. Mm -hmm. And so in the most simplest of terms, start to finish, it is non-white people that are bearing the brunt of the system and it is unfair. Yeah. Yeah. It is totally unfair. I mean, I remember growing up, my mom would be like, you can't say things are unfair. Life just isn't fair and you have to accept it. And I refuse to accept that. I this hate is that. unfair. Yeah. Yeah. This is this needs to change like right and now. If it is unfair and we know that we can do things to change it, why not just jump in especially when you know that perhaps you are the person that can that can say, you know what, I'm not going to shop from that place anymore. It'll be hard at first. I'll they'll get me every now and then, <laughs> but yeah. I'm not going to be handing them 10% of my paycheck anymore. Thanks again to Aja for taking the time to talk to me. I know it was at the end of a long day for her and the time difference was pretty massive, but that conversation with Aja reminded me of how powerful, how passionate, and how smart the people in this movement are. Like if anyone is going to change the world to make it fair and equitable and safe and well, still livable, it's going to be all of you all of us. And it starts with us because nothing changes without us. And conversely, it all changes with us. Like we can make the change happen. And I know that feels unfair sometimes. Why does it have to be our responsibility? Because Previous generations and big corporate greed and billionaires making their fortunes off of the backs of black and brown people and lack of government regulations, decades of greenwashing and misinformation, all of these things that have little to nothing to do with us have had a tremendously terrible impact on the planet, its people, and our future. And now... We must turn this ship around and do better. It, it can feel overwhelming as an individual. There are so many times I have felt so hopeless because I'm just one person. And no matter how much I reuse packaging or compost or shop secondhand or make a podcast about it, I can't cancel out the impact of Shell or Amazon or fast fashion or Jeff Bezos or anything as a whole. 
But then I remind myself, one person can't change the world alone, but real change can and will happen when we work together. That's the magic of collective action, of educating others, of welcoming more people into our community. And we can do this. We will do this. The second half of my conversation with Aja will be coming next week. And in the meantime, please check out her book, Consumed. It goes without saying, but I'll just say it anyway. Please, please don't buy it from Amazon. Find your local bookstore. You can easily use Google Maps for that. Or check out bookshop.org. Seriously, just please don't give your money to assholes. You can find Aja on Instagram at Aja Barber, and you can support her work via Patreon at patreon.com slash Aja Barber. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse, researched, written, edited, and hosted by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you'd like to support my work around here, please check out patreon.com slash Close Podcast. And please, if you feel like it, if you, if you got the hankering to do it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or even better, seriously, even better, tell a friend. Don't forget to check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. It's the fun podcast. We just talked last week about the social and fashion trends started by Sex in the City and how Carrie is kind of the worst. I'll share a link to that in the show notes, but definitely check it out if you're looking for something different to hear. Thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support, and happy five years of marriage, dude. We did it, and it just keeps getting better, even as the rest of the world gets weirder. Bye. (laughs) 